Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. For the Record is a special conversation with Peter Brooks, founding director, and Kai Erickson, Jeffrey Hartman, and Robert Schulman, founding fellows of Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, offering their recollections and reflections on their involvement with the center as part of its 30-year anniversary. Uh, it's, it's rare and slightly intimidating to be speaking to an audience that is made up of nothing but friends, as far as I can see, uh, looking out, but very nice. Uh, just a few brief remarks uh, about uh, the early days. When, when Bart Giamatti, uh, who had recently become president of Yale, asked me to undertake uh, making uh, a humanities center, I was worried, of course. I knew you could build it, but, but would they come? It, it seemed to me that the Yale faculty, like all faculties, were uh, totally absorbed in their own departments and programs and their teaching and research uh, with rather little inclination uh, to come together and expose themselves to their colleagues. Uh, what came to mind on that occasion were the words that Henry James used to describe Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, seemed to me uh, apposite to, to my colleagues and, and I must say to myself as well. James said of Hawthorne, he was silent, diffident, more inclined to hesitate, to watch and wait and meditate than to produce himself and fonder on almost any occasion of being absent than of being present. <laughs> um, but they did come, uh, starting with... Uh, these fellows and, and a number of others who are no longer with us. And I think the reason is simply that the, the center was needed. It had to be invented um, at that time and in this place. And of course, it has continued to, to flourish and expand and to grow in ways that I never imagined under the creative leadership of Maria Menocal. Um, it was inaugurated, as Maria said, in February of 1981, but the idea reached back uh, about a decade before that. And there are odd bits and pieces in the archives uh, which you uh, pulled out, um, Ed McClellan's memo, um, and uh, a number of others. Bart had written a funding appeal to, uh, to Jock Whitney in, 17, in 1979, uh, talking about the vulnerability of the humanities in the contemporary university and the need to reassert uh, humanistic scholarship. I think my own thinking about the center was most influenced by a remark of Jeffrey Hartman's uh, that Yale was an exceptional place in what it did for its students, but that it did very little intellectually uh, for its faculty. Um, and that was, for me, always the core idea of the place, that it should be about faculty teaching faculty. Uh, which was by no means to be said in opposition to our uh, departmental uh, classroom uh, and disciplinary commitments, but rather uh, an attempt to build over and above those a kind of superstructure of faculty learning from one another. And I must, I must say I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, another remark that uh, echoed in my mind was um, by John Perry Miller, uh, who was the dean of the graduate school when I first came here to, to teach, who once called Yale a truncated university. And he was, of course, 
comparing it to Harvard. Yale was always looking over his shoulder at Harvard in those days. Um, and what he meant was that Yale was lacking in institutes, uh, uh, didn't do much in the public's policy spheres, but it seemed to me that it could apply to the humanities as well. And there was an opportunity at Yale as at no other institution because of its strengths in the humanities to build a kind of institute for advanced studies uh, in the humanities. Uh, there were a lot of specific concerns then, which I think are still relevant now, concerns about the departmentalization and isolation uh, of faculty, the fragmentation of academic life. Uh, the university had become increasingly and probably even more since then atomized and privatized and with the coming of various electronics we can all just stay at home and, and never produce ourselves in public. Um, and generally a feeling of lack of intellectual community. And I think Bart was particularly sensitive to the plight of the junior faculty, who at that time, particularly in the large departments like English, seemed like no more than cannon fodder. Uh, they, they entered Yale through a kind of revolving door. Um, this was before Yale moved to a tenure-track policy, which uh, I very much approve of, uh, and were very much isolated in, in very hierarchical uh, departments. The scientists, we felt, were better off because they worked in labs where, where, where junior faculty generally uh, worked alongside of uh, older faculty. So the premise from the, from the very beginning was that this should be a, a place uh, for meeting of minds, for looking for common ground on issues that mattered, a place that would be non-hierarchical where uh, uh, an assistant professor could uh, engage and heckle uh, a Jeffrey Hartman or a Kai Erickson or a Bob Schulman, um, a place that would try to renew the sense of intellectual apprenticeship uh, on which our profession is so much uh, built. But then what really kick-started it was the fact that Bart, uh, against uh, uh, good advice, went out and bought this building, uh, which had belonged to the Episcopal Church once upon a time. And he used, um, this is a, a footnote to Yale hus uh, history, he used leftover funds that Jock Whitney had given when Kingman Brewster was still president in order to build two new colleges, two new colleges that were never built because the Board of Aldermen uh, didn't approve the, the, the land use. Uh, some of it then went for renovating the old campus, but there was enough left over to buy this building. Of course, there wasn't enough money left to, to renovate it. Uh, when we moved in, uh, the roof leaked. Uh, Kai Erickson was then running the Yale Review upstairs, and I think all the back issues were destroyed by uh, a flood. Uh, it took uh, Maria's uh, enthusiasm and, and guts to get the building uh, put into its present elegant shape. Uh, but the task... Uh, once we had the building. And physical spaces are very important. I mean, I've had a chance over the years to talk to lots of people starting new humanities centers, and I've always, I've always ended up saying to them, you've got to have a place. You've got to have a place where people can come. Um, but then once we had the place, the idea was to try and make it worth faculty uh, time. And you know the, the, the Yale problem, as I already alluded to it, is that they didn't want to join any club that wanted them. Um, or rather, they're going to join the club, but they're going to sit in the back row and, and sit not, uh, say nothing. So we had to convince the faculty that this would be worth uh, their time. Um, there were a lot of things that, that helped, including Bart's enthusiasm 
for the, the project. We got um, some money from the Luce Foundation for the Luce Visiting Scholar in the Humanities and Social Thought. Um, and with the help of many of you here, we recruited uh, a number of remarkable ones in the early days, starting with Elie Wiesel, and Juliet Mitchell, Natalie Davis, Carlo Ginsberg, uh, Alastair McIntyre, and a number of others. Then we got some Mellon money for uh, junior faculty fellows uh, and some money from the Graduate School for Graduate Fellows. Later on, Woodrow Wilson postdoctoral fellows to create a kind of uh, generational mix. And, and most of all, from the very beginning, we had a first-rate core of faculty fellows. Uh, originally, being appointed as a fellow was a presidential uh, appointment because uh, Bart had a very good... Uh, sense of um, tact and things like this. Um, uh, but we, we also made a decision early on that uh, fellows would not be fellows for life, but only for a two or three year term. So they would roll over and that remarkable list that Maria's distributing at the door shows how many uh, remarkable people have been a fellow since the inception. Um, so the fellowship, which met and still meets, I believe, once a week, was kind of the inward-looking part of the center uh, where one debated uh, fellows' work in progress and also issues of larger import in the humanities. It uh, had the kind of intensity of a faculty seminar, if you will. But then there were outward-looking uh, activities as well, with some of which are recorded on those posters Maria was talking about upstairs, symposia, seminars, working groups, um, and services that the center uh, provided to colleagues, such as distributing uh, research money from the uh, Griswold publication, uh, the Griswold Research and the Hillis Publication Fund. Now, just to just to to end, I, I still ask myself why why did it work, where some other disciplinary event, interdisciplinary ventures didn't. I think it had to do with the moment of the founding. It was a moment of debate about the disciplines, their origins their formations, what they had excluded or repressed, you might say, um, in their development, about the place of theory and what it could tell us about uh, practices. It was a moment where I think the, the humanities were becoming an export commodity to other fields, uh, such as law and even economics. Uh, a moment when a certain linguistic term turn uh, in thinking um, made the kind of reading and interpretation that goes on centrally in the humanities important to all fields and extended the, the importance of what you might call rhetoric, understanding it as all the systems of persuasion, indeed all the systems of communication in which the humanities deal. So I think it was a moment when the university needed such a center to renew and redefine the place of the humanities uh, and of the university and find a more integrated and philosophical sense of what universities were doing. That is, I think that most of us wanted to believe that a university is more something more than a suite of classrooms and computer terminals, that, that there is such a thing as the idea of a university uh, which needed to be renewed by the serious engagement of faculty one with another. 
And it worked also because shortly after the founding, the, the public culture wars took off, and uh, those culture wars made what you might call the defense and illustration of the humanities uh, more important than ever. And I think this place became uh, a center for talking about uh, the public importance of the humanities. Well, let me end, but let me end where I began uh, with Bart Giamatti, since he's the person who made this all happen. In his remarks on the uh, inauguration uh, of the Whitney Humanities Center in 1981, um, he cited Quintilian, uh, the great theoretician of rhetoric. Quintilian speaking about the orator as a skilled speaker and a good man. And this is Bart, Bart with his most magnificent and Baroque rhetoric. Quintilian gives a potent model for the humanist, one who connects private and public life through a rhetorical act that is skillful because it is first wise, effective because it is ethical. In that ancient version of the civic being so fresh today, language is the ligature binding private moral concerns and the shapely civic life. The humanist is whoever understands that linkage and strives at every moment to strengthen its meaning for our common good. I think we'll now go Jeffrey Hartman, Bob Schulman, and Kai Erickson, but you were wired, so uh, you could just stay where you are if you prefer. <clears throat> so I think that Peter Brooks, with his eloquence, has really touched on everything essential that I also feel and know about the center. But for once, the historian's bug bit me. And as you know, I am very fond of oral history, not so fond of written history for some reason. And there are very few, as you have mentioned, Maria, very few memos that were in my files. Of course, I'm not a very good file keeper, so let's forget that for a moment. But I can, I think, my adherence to the idea of a center like this came very early. But in the 1950s, I was on first appointment here. In those blessed days, you could spend five years as an instructor on first appointment. And in one of those years, I got impatient and went to the dean of the drama school here and said, how come that an institution, institu that institution like Yale has no film studies program? Well, he was a tolerant person. And so he answered, you know, Hartman, we at Yale do things properly. <laughs> and that meant, as those of you who know, who are in the Yale, the thriving Yale Film Studies and Media program now, how long it took to establish if you, if, if my encounter was in about 1958, I, I, won't, I won't even try to say how many years, but it's a lot of years, it's a generation 
before Yale found its way to do something very important. So I'm not surprised that the foundation of this center was not inevitable and that it took a very long time. And I want to speak as a, to, I want to speak about the prehistory of what Peter has mentioned, the prehistory meaning the not inevitable steps by which this center was founded. And so far as I can remember, the first step was really um, an ad hoc committee of the graduate school, which was reporting to John Perry Miller, who has already been uh, mentioned, and who somehow was an exception to the rule. He knew what was going on. He knew that this distinguished university had its heart really primarily in the undergraduates. Yes, it put the graduates there too eventually, but the faculty really were distinguished isolates who made their way, who if they were lucky, published, were recognized, would then go on to make a contribution to knowledge, and there was no thinking about how to bring them together. And I remember when, after some years of absence, when I left Yale, I came back in 1967, having left it in 1962, but it struck me that I had never, I think I'm right in saying this, I had never really seriously met someone from the history department. That is in my previous years. And even now, when I made an effort to do so, it wasn't all that, that easy. And I said, this surely is not right. And the committee, that well, I had nothing to do at first with the committee of the uh, graduate school to study the humanities at Yale, which John Perry Miller set up, and which I was also, it was a color committee, Dwight Color, which I was also serving on. But it came up with the idea that the important thing was somehow to found a central humanities center. That is, they called it the establishment of a center for humanistic studies. I will later read you one or two sentences from the report which contained this. But it struck me as I thought about the history of the place and to try to find some memos, some documents, how important as a, to express the spirit of what was missing at Yale, how that was, how, how that was established in around 1968 by this committee that reported to, to the dean. Now the second step, I'm not really sure, I mean I'm sure it took place, but exactly how it happened. I know I complained. You don't believe that because I'm a meek person, as you know, I don't produce myself very much. But there is a certain crutch in me which must come out. And it did come out in, in, this, in this way. Uh, that I did go to certain people and said, look, this and that and that, 
And eventually, I guess they got tired of me and said, okay, we'll give you your way. Uh, we'll, we'll establish something called the Council on the Humanities. And this was really Kingman who was responsive, most responsive, the Council on Humanities, which will have nothing to do with appointments or promotions, but can just think about this kind of problem which you have presented to us, that there should be more intellectual life in, and, 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 and scholarly intercourse in the various departments, what we all call then and perhaps now the in, interdisciplinary matters. But I wasn't thinking so much formally interdisciplinary as I wanted to meet some people. <laughs> and I wanted to meet a historian, a, even scientists. <laughs> I wanted to meet, and I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing that. So the Council on the Humanities was, uh, was established with a very nice roster of people. David Apter was on it. Um, uh, I think Howard Lamar was on it. I keep forgetting everybody was on it. Who, who was on it? Uh, McLennan was on it. Um, in any case, about 10 of us there. And lo and behold, we were given something very concrete to do, but relatively unimportant. For instance, the Griswold Fund had not been used since its inception, and the Griswold Fund was over a million dollars. And so Kingman said, do something with this. And so we, you know, we said that must be a research fund. Okay, so that's pretty, pretty down to earth, not very, very significant, except insofar as we were able to, um, to encourage um, research at Yale. Another thing we did was to uh, welcome the cancer, the cancer Fund for Psychoanalysis in the Humanities. And I think this did a lot in the first years to make it possible for undergraduates as well as graduates to think about, uh, think about psychoanalysis as a liberal discipline which, whether you thought it correct or not, it had produced so much literature, interesting literature, that it should be followed up. But these were, I think, the minor thing, things, because within the year that we were founded, which was 72, within that year there was an important approach from the, from the national, from the NEH, National Education World. Endowment for the Humanities. Endowment, yeah. National Endowment for the Humanities. And again, inevitability, I don't know. A new NEH person at the helm, Ronald Berman, um, had the idea that there should be NEH, four NEH institutes in the country. And he chose Yale as the first. Why? because he had studied with Maynard Mack. <laughs> and he knew that Maynard Mack was about to retire, and he really mm -hmm. wanted, this is the kind of gratitude all of us teachers want, <laughs> he wanted Maynard Mack not to retire or to spend his last four years or so doing something uh, 
scholarly and staying at Yale as an active person. You remember, we all had to retire at 65 or maybe 68. So he approached Kingman uh, and said, you know, let us do this. And Kingman gave us, the Council on Humanities, the job of examining this and making a report to him, which we did, but with some difficulty. Why? Because Arnold Berman was afraid of the political consequences of giving $2.6 million to Yale. And, I mean, that's common sense, that it should be that, should be. But Brewster said, Yale has done too little, or too little that is known for the public, and we should do something dramatic, which, which is a contribution of the Yale faculty to the national education picture. So I want this. Berman didn't disagree, but when we discussed it in the faculty, in the Council on the Humanities, the issue came up of Berman restricting the gift by saying that, by stipulating that the Yale faculty could not be invited. <laughs> as fellows to the, um, uh, to the NEH Institute, although they would do all the planning for it. That is, if you were an administrator or were a faculty person who was willing to come to an be an administrator, then you, could, then you could be appointed in the first year to establish the template for it. Then there would be four years of the Institute at Yale to really test out the template, and then it was over. In the end, they only gave three years of support instead of four years of support. So in the committee, there was a very vivid discussion, I won't go into it, but we said this is really not worth it for the faculty. Let's see what, what we can do with it. We, we talked to Kingman and Kingman agreed that if we, if we established this, if we came out with a positive recommendation for it, why then he would try to continue it for Yale as a faculty um, center. And so it did come about uh, in, uh, I think, uh, 75, sorry, Yes, 75 to 76 was the first NEH year. The four institutes were never, only one of those institutes was ever founded because there was a reaction, a political reaction. Claiborne Pell, you know, the Pell Grants founder, uh, complained bitterly, thinking it should go in a different educational direction and he, in some sense he was right. And so the question was, when would we get our reward here for the faculty? And what happened was that in 50, in, in 1975, yes, in 1975, Kingman Booster retired, I hope I've got the dates right, uh, Hannah Gray came in, 
um, as uh, I, I don't know, I think she was acting president or she may have become president. And only in 1977 or 1978, I think, Bart came in in 1977, you see how not an exact historian, as an acting president and became a president in 1978. No? You're going to correct me about that. One thing about this um, was that on the committee, the Council on the Humanities, Bart Giamatti also was sitting and he never forgot Kingman's promise. And even though there was a so-called financial crisis at Yale during these same years, and Kingman, before he, whenever he retired, before he retired, um, could not found the center, but almost as soon as he ascended to the throne, did work, and you have described this, did work towards getting the the money for the center. Now I find this interesting because as I say, it, it didn't really have inevitability, but it somehow was overdue and it took Kingman to recognize that and to listen to the faculty. Now what I want to do is not do one more thing quickly because I don't want to take up all your time. I would like to read you two items here. The first is the, the beginning sentences of the 1968 committee set up by Perry Miller in order to show you how he conceived it and here is the first sentence of the 1968 report. The paradox of graduate education in the humanities is that it is professional education in a liberal subject. The students are well grounded in the formation of their particular fields and sufficiently skilled in the machinery of scholarship, but they tend to get locked into their fields and they are short on the general sympathies and understandings that are supposedly the product of study in the humanities. And the rest of this document is worthwhile reading. I also want to quote to you what a second year junior fellow, did we mention junior fellows? A second year junior fellow wrote to me about his experience uh, in in the Humanities Center, in the Whitney Humanities Center. I think the term to characterize the regular Friday symposia is generosity of spirit. Taste and erudition were simply assumed, as were menial, sorry, not menial, as were agility and wide reading. Beyond that, the moment may have been marked by something more fleeting, a kind of intellectual enthusiasm, a zeal that served on other causes than zeal itself. 
no other causes than zeal itself. I suppose a critical visitor might have sent a touch, might have sensed a touch of complacency. It's a very young person talking. But viewed from the inside, it felt more like privilege paying its way. With curiosity and candor as coin of the realm, it hadn't yet hardened into an institution. As for me, I, I am not going to give you my, my impressions of the experience. I was privileged to be there not only in the first year with, with, once with those who are sitting here, but a second year and then a third year. And then I didn't get the money anymore, but <laughs> I was allowed to drop in whenever I wanted, like many of the founding fellows. And so if there were a Michelin for humanities centers, of, whom, of which so many exist in this country, if there were that Michelin, and it had to be a rating of the humanities center or a notation, then I would insist that they would put Savon and Détour. It's worthwhile a special out-of-the-way trip, not only for the intellectual exchange and atmosphere, but also, and Peter hinted at this, but also because of the cuisine. Am I live? Good. Uh, I used to uh, talk with David Apter, who was in many ways the spirit of this place. And David would always say that uh, he had changed his thinking completely as a result of his experience here in the Mandy Center. Uh, I, I read a number of David's papers trying to figure out you know, how he had changed. And what I found as I went back in time to the time he was originally exploring in Africa, he had changed his theories every time I could uh, find them. So I don't, <laughs> think that, uh, I don't think that it was uh, unique for him here, uh, that experience. But uh, supported by his sense that the, the real uh, impact of the Humanity Center was the effect it had upon the individual uh, professors who were here as fellows, I'm going to tell you the effect it had upon me. Uh, and uh, Peter uh, and I were uh, divisional directors at the same time in 1981. And we got to like, I got to like him, and he obviously got to like me because he invited me along with Bart did to become a fellow here the next year that this was formed. And uh, I, uh, after 25 years at Bell Telephone Labs, became a fellow here at the Whitney Humanities Center. And uh, so then, I, uh, since then, I've been, uh, uh, feel quite competent to discuss the history of literature and uh, the interpretation of it uh, uh, quite freely because I'm uh, excused because I'm an amateur. Uh, so that. <clears throat> Before the formation of the Whitney Humanities Center, <clears throat> the Yale literature departments were dominated by deconstructionism, which questioned the existing definitions and practices of literature and literary criticism. Somehow the skeptics, as 
that all right? <laughs> yeah. You're on your own. <laughs> Somehow, the skepticism, not of the individual, but of his discipline, uh, became the spirit that I noticed in the Humanity Center. Uh, in contrast to the revolutionary spirit of the earlier deconstructionists, the fellows I met at the Humanity Center were rather conservatively committed to their discipline. Uh, they or we were not trying to discard or overturn our fields, but rather by using the skeptical insights of the recent literary rebels, they merely, we merely intended to modify, improve, and renew our disciplines. We were not interdisciplinary, we were multidisciplinary. We did not criticize each other, we criticized ourselves and our own fields. There was a rare appreciation of the other. Although our fields suffered, differed, our way of thinking was shared. To combine a deep commitment to the worthiness of our discipline with a personal wish to change them. Owen Fiss reflected at the time not on the need for technical changes in the law, but on its primary function of creating justice. David Apter spoke of the difficulties of creating the democracy in developing countries under the duress of tribal prejudice and residual imperialism. John Boswell spoke of how history could be improved by considering the neglected victims of a time, children in the Middle Ages, like gays and lesbians today, and how including those outliers, history could get, would gain. While Peter Brooks took care of all of us and steadily emphasized the seriousness of literary studies. In reacting, I struggled with the conflict between what I had loved in traditional science and the prevailing assumptions in brain science, which I entered into here. I began to sense how epistemological questions were common to both science and the humanities, rendering them more similar than suggested by their subjects. These considerations about how various disciplines determined, discovered, or created something that they, had that they considered the truth soon merged with discussions about campus politics, which Peter referred to a moment ago, in 1980, Sid Bass, late 1980s, a wealthy Yale alumnus, offered several million dollars to support a change in the undergraduate curriculum that would add additional emphasis to Western civilization and would form the basis of a new undergraduate major. This change required Yale faculty approval, and it was discussed and criticized at a, at a lively Yale College faculty meeting. The dean of Yale College, in defending the idea of a renewed emphasis on Western civilization, characterized the literature faculty, especially the fraction at the Whitney Humanities Center, as anti-realist with a mistaken sense of values. In criticizing, the, in criticizing the humanists for what he described as their relativism, the dean asserted that, fortunately, standards of truth, not socially conditioned, were still found among scientists, and humanists would be well advised to follow the orderly search for truths that the scientists conducted. Uh, since my scientific studies had begun to focus on brain-mind issues, I was beginning to understand the limitations of a positivistic scientific methodology. I was beginning to feel that while scientists have a powerful track record of describing the physical world, we still did not have some mechanical ability to reveal a definite truth. We were establishing working truths based on observation and experimentation, 
But we did so within the boundaries of our field, which gave us the reliability of science, but did not give us a privileged position. Mounting the stage and in a halting voice, I said to the dean that I often found that instead of being sure of directions and assumptions because of my scientific training, I felt uncertainty similar to my friends in the humanities. I did not hold, I said, with the image of scientists sitting at their desks, analyzing data, and then every so often moving to the salami of truth hanging in their office to cut a slice for publication. <laughs> I didn't argue in this way because I was against studying the, tre <coughs> the treasures of Western culture. I was not against it. I didn't assert my views in this way because I doubted that physical science had the capacity to test and validate by means of observation and consensus. Very important and practical working, working truths. I just felt that it was important to assert that scientists share, shared with humanists a tentativeness characteristic of the human search for understanding, which I had learned here uh, under the guidance of all my colleagues, uh, some of whom are here today, and some I see in the audience with great pleasure. And I remember Joe Mapalambara <coughs> talking to us about how Italy managed to survive uh, despite being cor completely corrupt. <laughs> and, uh, the wonderful times that we had. Uh, thank you all for your attention. Hi. I, uh, my thought is that I will make two very brief remarks. But the first thing I'd like to say is that, that uh, Peter asked the question, why did this thing work? And three of the four people sitting up here know exactly why it works. And everybody out there knows why it works, and I think it should be said. Right. It was Peter Brooks. Peter, right. And that he... <laughs> he, he gave a lot of credit to the thinking of Bart Giamatti, which is fair, and he gave a lot of credit to just the interdisciplinary atmosphere of Yale as an intellectual place, which is fair. But still in all, it took the person to sit there and make the thing what it was. He breathed life into it. And, uh, uh, and I think we all know that. And if you don't know it, I, I, I would like you to know it. <laughs> uh, and I, I would add to that that we all know what's keeping it alive now. And I would say the same thing, except that we're talking about the old days. Now, the old days, what, what I'm reminded about the old days, I look over at this table, and I see all these people who are approaching middle age. And I wonder <laughs> how it could possibly be that 35 years ago we were regarded as senior enough to be part of this, of this, of this amazing thing. And that does, it, it, it brings to my mind questions about the range of things that were discussed in those times. We called this a humanities center, and that means that a lot of things were discussed that belong conventionally in the, in the sphere of the, of the humanities. But you and I are living representatives, and so was David after, that right from the beginning, this conversation covered all of human knowledge uh, with the understanding that that's really what Humanities, what humanities meant, and uh, and uh, and I uh, and I know that that was the spirit with you began this thing too. But the other thing I would say is the time covered. Looking back those 35 years when I was, uh, I'm, I'm going to pretend to have been a very young man then to explain my youthfulness now. That that uh, uh, sitting right across the table, the very first meeting we had was Jaroslav Pelikan, who to me represented kind of the last. Of the, of, the, of the spirit of the 19th century. And I thought our, our gathering, uh, he, was, he, was, he represented both, both those centuries, but we were of the 20th century. I'm now a fellow again of this center, 
And now we're talking about the 21st century. So you may think that we're covering 35 years in this discussion, but so far we've, we've covered three whole centuries and, uh, and have a future yet, future yet to discuss. But I do just want to, I just want to say the, the range of things that were thought to be the proper topic of what a center like us would do was, was immense. I would also add one thing, which, I, which uh, this will only, uh, Peter and I were the only people that could walk to our meetings without going outside because I, my office was upstairs and your office was downstairs, and that was a great virtue too. But the, what, I really want, what I really want to, to, to raise as, as, I, bring my, as I, I really am going to bring my thoughts to a close is, is, is to look at a particular span of time doesn't really represent the amount of things that can be brought into it in a, in a, a, short, a, you know, a short space of people and in a short span of time. And I, uh, looking back on this, I think we're going to find that a very large portion of what has been thought about at Yale has been discussed here, and some of it originated here. And I can't tell you how, what a pleasure it is for me to sit now and think back those 35 years. And thank you. <laughs> this conversation with Peter Brooks, founding director, and Kai Erickson, Jeffrey Hartman, and Robert Schulman, founding fellows of Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, was part of the celebration of the center's 30th anniversary. It took place at the Whitney Humanities Center on February 28, 2012.